I'm giving you $2 billion. Would you buy TaylorMade? All right, guys, so how are we feeling this week? Amazing. Still alive, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel like the sun's finally back out here. Yeah, but it's freezing. Normally, I'd be really, like, sick right now coming back from the mm -hmm. PGA show, but... I know. Happy to report, not sick. Yeah. So. yeah, quarantining has had that effect. I haven't gotten my annual cold yet, so that's good news. No. <laughs> the Orlando flu, not this year. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. I wanted to jump right into it, and before we talk about the for sale sign, Tony, I want to come to you because the USGA has released the next step in their distance study, so can you bring us up to speed? Tell us what it's looking at. Yeah, so it's it's two documents they put out essentially, you know, a few days ago by the time this is recorded. Um, and the golf companies really only got them a, a few hours before the general public. I should say golf companies and apparently the USGA's, I, I guess you could say, preferred media partners uh, were, were given an inside look as well. But again, it's it's kind of the, the evolution of the distance study, two documents that essentially out, outline what they're saying, areas of interest, and then providing an opportunity for USGA members, golf companies to comment on the, I guess, what you would call proposals. So, you know, if I'm going to summarize it, basically, they're, they're really looking at three, I, three big picture ideas, right? The first one is essentially a, a possible local rule where they would say, you know, we're going we're gonna to give you a guideline of a local rule that would allow a tournament, an event, a committee to, to specify rules specific to that tournament as it relates to equipment. So you could mandate a different golf ball, for example, or a limited golf ball. And what they're saying is that rule could apply to all levels of play. However, it's kind of between the lines recommendation is we really recommend that you only do this for elite amateur and professional competition. So really what it is, is a way to address the idea of bifurcation, right? Having two sets of rules without actually using the B word, which which they don't want to do because for whatever reason, the USGA seems unwilling to at least overtly publicly accept that golf is a divergent game, right? The pro game is progressing in a way that the amateur game isn't. And so those two things are, are pulling farther apart. And the USGA says, we don't want to have two sets of rules, but if we allow for local rules, we can have two sets of rules without having two sets of rules. So that's that's the proposal I like. It's really clean. Um, I'll give the other guys a chance to, to share their thoughts on that. And then the other two things are looking at clubs and then the golf ball. We can dig on that in a second. Harry, you're shaking your head when it comes to local rules. It's stupid. It. <laughs> I mean, it depends on how far below the pro circuit they go. Is it PGA Pro, LPGA? Is it the minor tours? Well, so it's it's whatever, right? Anybody who wants to implement the rule can, and anybody who doesn't, doesn't have to. They started this insights, this distance study, right? And and they've been doing it, you know, in small bits and pieces, uh, you know, over a number of years. Obviously, it's it's become a more concentrated effort in the last several years. Part of that's because of, call it guys like, uh, you know, Bryson, DeChambeau or, you know, really anybody else at that super elite level, it it makes me go back to, you know, a theory that I've had for a long time, which is sometimes the primary issue with rulemaking bodies is that they feel really inclined to make rules. And that's kind of what they do, right? Like their job, you know, whether they're, however they want to uh, determine their purpose is 
to you know be guardians of the game for you know for everyone that loves it and plays it and grow the game and protect the game and and all these kind of sanctimonious ideals that here's what we want to do but right but what are they what are they trying to protect st andrews <laughs> pebble beach is it because they're shooting lower scores yes. or is it because no, of the distance well, is going too far i think so i think it's two things one i think they're trying to protect potentially an ideal of what some feel golf quote unquote should be the part where i think there's legitimacy to to this whole enterprise is if they feel like the the requisite skills necessary to be the best players at the top of the game is out of whack that that distance is being rewarded more than it should be at the time i get that I think there's evidence to support that at the elite levels of the game that maybe distance has become too important at that level. Mm -hmm. Now, I fundamentally disagree. I would push back on you immediately and say if you look at the 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 skill set that is is probably the hardest to achieve in golf, it's to hit the ball long and straight, right? Let's jack it up full Bryson, you know, everything he might get with a 48-inch driver. If, right. if you're pounding at 400 yards and 60 yards left, you're nowhere. You you have right. to you have to convert that distance to a reasonably straight line. And you know the math on the way a golf ball says, generally speaking, the farther it goes, the more offline it travels. So to hit right. it far and not hit it farther offline, that's that's a huge skill. So even if you're in a little bit in the rough, you're still doing something that is innately skillful. Absolutely. It's I think it's the idea of skill is this like I'm going to I'm going to shape a 5 iron into a green. The problem with I that I have with the USGA and they're talking about this distance claim or whatever it is. They've got the fairways running at like a 10 on a stim meter or whatever it's it's like pristine conditions. Back when say Sir Nick Fado was playing, they were playing on ones where you could get a flyer lie or you could be have a bear lie within 10 inches of each other on the fairway. The greens were bumpy. The, yeah. Right now, the courses are so flipping good. If they're going for to try and protect the scores, make the courses harder. Tighten the fairways up, grow the rough. The scores will come down. That's been proven. For distance, over the years of 10, 10 years, it isn't that much of an increase in average tour distance. It's maybe one or two yards. The biggest year-over-year -year increase came when uh, Nike exited and all the guys playing Nike drivers moved <laughs> into other stuff. Right. And that's like, that's not a joke. That's, right. you know, like, look that's, at that's, what, that's the point. Tommy yeah. Fleetwood picked up double digits. I think Rory McIlroy close to double digits just by, you know, moving not out playing of Nike. Nike clubs. Yeah. Anymore. So that was, that was a big yeah. jump. Yeah. Then you have Lynx golf where when Tiger Woods won at um, Hoylake, he was hitting a stinger two iron that was pitching something like two, 210, 220, and rolling out for 50, 60 yards. Well, now right. his technically his two iron is like 270, 80 yards off the tee. The the scorecard doesn't end after the drive, right? So if you hit it long and whether it's straight or or offline, you still have to hit an iron shot or a wedge shot, right? You still have to have skill in that area. Yep. It doesn't, you know, hitting it long doesn't give you the freedom to miss greens on your second shot, right? That's you're gonna lose every week if you if you miss a lot of greens. Unless you were Patrick Reed last week, like I think I think he had like felt like two greens over yeah. the weekend and one. It's because he got his hand wedge out and put it on the green. <laughs> you still have to make the putt, and so you know yeah. this idea that 
and I mean, Lou Stagner's probably put up about a thousand tweets about this by now, right? The, the idea that added distance removed skill is not supported by, by anything other than the fact that, well, the score relative to par seems to be going down and we don't like that. It's, it's just evolution, right? So basketball players are getting taller. Are you going to move it from, what is it, 12 foot for the basket? Are you going to move that up to 15 foot now because they're getting taller? Because they can literally just stand and just dunk That'd it. That'd be a hell of a deal because it's only at 10 feet because that would really screw some people up. Is it up, 10? <laughs> it's 10, yeah. Okay, 10. So if they move up to 12. Because I could jump really high at one point and touch the net. Okay, yeah, and so, move move the three point line back eight feet because we don't like that. The, there's way more right. three pointers now than when I was a kid, right? Right. Um, right. This is just just showing into my English because I have no clue how tall <laughs> a, a basket is. Every sport evolves. So here's the other problem: is we've been talking about this for 15, 20 minutes, and just like the USGA, it's been almost entirely focused on golfers at the absolute elite levels. Right. And the primary downside to this is they talk a lot about wanting to gather information from their constituents, right? That we want to accept, you know, feedback from all stakeholders, yada, 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 all these kind of things. And to date, it's an overwhelming majority of people that uh, I think, Tony, you, you posted something that Peter Costa said around, you know, the difference between people that get paid to play the game and the people that pay to play the game is remarkable. And so if the report were to go out of balance one way or the other, say, hey, we're really going to focus in on this particular group of people, how how have we so ignored the 99.9% of amateur golfers that really are the game of golf? I think in that tweet too, the idea was, you know, if professional golf fell off the map and didn't exist for a year, the game of golf would still would still be there. So so how have we gotten so far away from the actual, you know, from from the vast, vast, vast majority, the largest constituency in this entire conversation is the average Joe three putt. So why have we missed that? Yeah, it's it's kind of absurd. So I, you know, I was going back and forth with again Lou Stagner yesterday after talking to one of my one of my contacts at the golf companies. And, you know, Lou's numbers say that amateur distance is essentially unchanged since 2002 right so 20 years and and that amateur distance the average drive for an amateur golfer based on the available data hovers between 217 and 220 yards you know and again that's that's been that way since about what i say 99 the mid 90s anyway right just mm-hmm. because you have this point zero, point zero something percent of golfers who have who have picked up yards you know, average guys aren't. And that's where I talked about this idea of a divergent path, right? Where amateurs are, are playing the same game they always have. The pros, bigger, faster, stronger, because, you know, I I have a job, right? I, I have to right. sit at my desk and, and basically type stuff um, for the most part and then go <laughs> go measure some golf balls. But point being, I don't I don't have a large section of my week that is carved out to go to the gym and speed train because I am not a professional golfer. So I don't have the same type of commitment to, to improving my game that, that an elite golfer has. And that, that's true, I think, for most amateurs. And so that distance, knowing what we know about equipment, that, that amateur distance is not going to change significantly forever. 
Like that is that is the path we're on. It's not going to tick up in any measurable way. And it's so what makes to, us amateurs. Right. And so to look at <laughs> to look at it and go, oh yeah, well, you know, these pro guys are hitting it really far. And so we need to do something that impacts everybody. Even if it's even if you only impact the the average guy a tiny little bit, it's still kind of for lack of a more elegant term, it's a dick move to solve a problem that that doesn't exist for ninety nine point nine something percent of people. Right. What's really clear is for all the research and time and energy and millions of dollars that the USGA has spent on uh, you know, producing all this information, there's a disturbing lack of really, really solid amateur data. You know, when we have companies out there like ShotScope, like Arcos, like fill in the blank, right? Good old Phil. Yeah, and it's tracking their information. And um, this was go- now going back a year ago. I was talking to one of the guys at Arcos, and and I said, "Hey, you know, did the USG ever reach out to you guys? You any kind of conversation?" It's like, you know, no, nothing. Yeah, the biggest between ShotScope <laughs> and Arcos, obviously, I think safe to assume the two biggest databases of amateur data. Right? What are what are ninety nine point nine something percent of golfers doing when they hit a ball off the tee? How far yeah. is it going? And the USG is like. Yeah, who cares? People employ the USGA. I don't think they're stupid, right? I'm not saying that. I, I think they're very well aware, and 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 I do think they're probably well intentioned. Okay, but if you're not gathering data from all these vast resources, are you doing it because you don't know it exists? I don't think that's the case. Or are you not doing that because maybe you don't want to see the answers? Do you not want to see what's behind door number three and go, oh, shit, yeah, amateurs aren't hitting it further. We're, we're doing a major, major disservice to that particular group of people. And, and To the people who pay, our due, who pay dues and fund this yes. entire operation. Back to your point, Tony, at the very beginning, this idea of the naughty word, right, bifurcation, that the USGA doesn't want to say because, again, I think it's the, this ideal, this – again, kind of sanctimonious nonsense around one set of rules, when the reality is the amateur game and the professional game have never been further apart. And and the fact that you're trying to put one set of rules on top of the entire game, given the distance from, again, me to Brooks Kepka or my dad to Rory McIlroy, is this false premise of, of idealism that doesn't really exist. So the idea of one set of rules for two really different games, it's on paper maybe, but it doesn't actually exist other than on paper. I don't see why bifurcation is a bad thing, to be perfectly honest. We do it in other sports. College football, you've only got to have one foot down for it to be a catch. The NFL, you got to have two. I mean, and that's just to account for more skilled type of players making it to the NFL that don't play in college. It exists at other in other sports. I don't see why it's a bad word. Not to get too far off track here, the challenge in that, right, is – when when you move from college to the NFL, there's a hard line, right? You are you are no longer a college player. You are in the NFL with within the golf game, with the world of golf. And this is, I mean, this is why Scott Fawcett fights bifurcation. And this, you know, I was like, what's the problem? And you know, I heard him out, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? This actually makes sense. You have this idea of amateurs competing to get into a U.S. Open, qualify for a U.S. Open, and then play in a U.S. Open. And so you you have you have guys that kind of move back and forth almost between amateur and pro competitions. And so there's not the firm disconnect that you sometimes have in other sports. So that makes it a little tricky. Okay, but then adjust when you play the different tournaments. And I do, I think that's reasonable where you say, look, you know, if, if you have eyes, and this is, this is, you know, the USGA for 
is is basically saying, you know, hey, we, we have this local rule that could be implemented if you wanted it for your <laughs> tournament. And also, right. if you just always wanted to play by that local rule, you have that option too. You could use the stuff that conforms to that rule. And so, like I said, it's bifurcation without saying it, where it's like, yeah, you know what? If you want to play by the local rule, feel free. Use the equipment that you would use in a competition situation all the time. Feel free. So, so that works. And I like that better than some of the stuff they're talking about with the equipment, though even some of that I actually kind of like. What about these other tours that are going to be, so say it's the mini tours, or if it's the whole PGA tour that's going to have the local rule, or the mini tours that are not going to have it? I mean, it's real simple. Like, hey, you know what? If And again, uh-huh. right, it's on everybody to make that decision ultimately. But if if it's an event where somebody collects a paycheck. All right, so if that's the case, how are you going to test what ball they are playing or how what driver they are playing how are you going to ct test that same way the usga does it now right you you have a conforming list for each set of rules right who's going to be there and test them the usga don't have the staff to go to 30 tournaments a day across the country they don't do that now i mean christ when you when you compete in a tournament harry right one set of rules now no local rule is there a usga van where you compete no, it never is. Not. And so, no. you know, that kind of goes back to the game of honor type of thing. And You can't have a police car in every street corner, but you still have speed limits, right? To me, that's no different than it is right now, right? Because whether it's a local rule or just a single rule, they can't enforce that now. There's nobody at the tournaments you play in checking driver CT. There's nobody at the tournaments you playing in making sure somebody's using isn't using a non-conforming golf ball. There's nobody at those tournaments checking wedge groups, right? So you already have that situation. And so it's it's really maybe you can say it's adding an extra layer to the onion, but ultimately it it's fundamentally I don't think any different than it is now. It's still, you know, kind of an honor system type of thing. I wouldn't mind seeing them explore ways that don't require you to touch any piece of equipment because I do think that once you start touching equipment and whether it's shortening the length of clubs or it's how you're testing the equipment or whatever the case is, there are major issues down any of those roads, right? If you do decide to say, yeah, they said, uh, you know, let the mower height go up a half an inch on the fairways. Now you might actually have to judge a fairway lie. I wouldn't mind seeing that approach. Yeah, I think that's that's certainly, you know, they're, they are looking at the agronomy and I think they may end up trying trying some things, but definitely, I mean, it's clear the focus is on the equipment. That's where they're looking. Why are they concentrating on equipment and not other factors that could solve this problem? Equipment's easy, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. the low hanging fruit. So like I said, balls and clubs, obviously, um, not looking at shoes from what I've been told. So Nick Faldo and his squares are safe. You can keep getting distance that way. <laughs> Roll back the squares. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, and it, it's weird because usually when it comes to the equipment stuff, I'm I'm very much anti-USGA regulations and what they're trying to do. But when I kind of go down the list of what they're talking about, a good bit of it, I'm like, eh, I don't really care. It's not going to have a major impact. So, you know, I'll give you some examples. They're talking about potentially limiting driver length to 46 inches. Chris, Chris has some thoughts on this. We'll get to. Um, the thing I like they're talking about, we can go way into the weeds on this, right? But they're when you talk about the core test to the CT test, which is kind of how they limit driver speed now, they're looking at tightening their tolerances on that test and saying, hey, we're not going to give you as much room. So that one I feel like is enforcing the rules that are already in place. Um, so that that I don't have a problem with, although I think ultimately it's inconsequential 
in terms of the average golfer anyway. You know, talking about lowering MOI possibly, putting a cap on MOI, shrinking the head is, is on the table. Creating a minimum spin condition is on the table. Limiting the radius of gyration is, is it's in the document is on the table, which just it looks like somebody at the USGA read the Cobra marketing material and was like, I don't like that. Let's you know can't do that anymore. Can't no, do that. No radius. No gyrating on my radius. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it's it's lots of little things, and we'll, the golf ball we can get to that part of the conversation. But on the club side, I'm kind of like do all of it, and I think it's probably minimally impactful, especially with the CT thing, because what they're talking about is, hey, we're going to tighten our tolerances on CT. And in exchange for that, we're not going to test as far out on the club face. And that would essentially allow manufacturers to raise CT on a part of the club face that a professional golfer never makes contact with, but in a way that would help amateur golfers a little bit more. So... That's the kind of stuff. I'll let the other guys jump in and we'll... Yeah, I think... I mean, two things. One, just really quick on the equipment part of it. Like, the things that they're talking about, uh, again, like the, the the radius of gyration, I laugh at that because it's like, yeah, they just went straight down, uh, straight down Cobra's, you know, marketing list from this year and said, nope, can't do that. I don't want you to do that. That doesn't gonna, work. We're going to prohibit ATI faces. Uh, <laughs> right. No more inertia generators. Those suck. Yeah, yeah. Those that's, are yeah. <laughs> like basically, we're going to react to every marketing term that gets thrown at us. We're just going to cross that off the list. Hey, baby girl. Yeah. And so if they do that, like you said, if they did the sum total of all of those things, probably a very marginal impact on, on recreational golfers. However, it puts the ball back in the court of the manufacturers to a degree. And there's a lot of smart people out there at these companies. And we saw this with the groove rule before, right? With the wedges and groove rule. They found ways to work around that, right? They found ways to get the spin back that that theoretically was taken away with the uh, you know with the inclusion of a new groove rule. And ultimately, you could argue at the very beginning of that, the only people that rule really hurt were amateurs that didn't have time to practice and 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 to really dive into. Okay, how can I really moderate my game so that I can get some of this spin back? But then we had shaft manufacturers coming in, right? They they looked at the wedge as a total composite club and said, okay, how can we get amateurs the amount of spin back that they need to? Oh, wait, here's here's some tweaks we can make to the golf ball inside 100 yards. Oh, now all of a sudden, you know, we basically manufactured our way uh, not even back to where we were, but probably to a better place mm-hmm. in that regard. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to see if the USJ did that. They're like, ooh, yay, good for us. Check this. We're, you know, we're guardians of the game. And then the manufacturers run with it and say, okay, here's how we've optimized for this, that. And they've started to answer questions in, in, in such a way that it actually improves performance or gets us at least back to where we are now, which makes me wonder, okay, why even change in the first place? The second point is the driver link thing. I think this is stupid. Why should Brooke Henderson need to shorten the length of the driver she plays? Is anybody sitting there? I mean, people are focusing on on certain players for sure, but I'm I'm reading the chat board, seeing all this stuff. I don't see this outrageous outcry over Brooke Henderson. So why are you going to tell me that she's optimally, you know, optimally fit for a certain club? And oh, sorry, Brooke, because of Bryson. Bryson. Because, <laughs> Bryson. Yeah, sorry, Brooke, because of Bryson, you can't play that particular club. And and. The other, I, you know, it's, it's it's a reach, no doubt. This is much more of a reach. But who's to say that if I'm not, if I'm optimally fit into a 46 and a half inch driver or 47 inch driver, I happen to be 6'7", 6'8", I have shorter arms or whatever the case is, 
why should I not be able to play equipment that's fit for me? I mean, would you cap? Because Bryson. Because Bryson. Would you cap shoe size on NBA players? Also, you should probably be playing basketball if you're that tall, but. Possibly, but you see I'm a just lot of, <laughs> I know, but you see X at, you know, get into, right? So like, oh, sorry, NBA, we're going to cap shoe size at 15. So if you happen <laughs> to wear like a 17 or a 22, just, you know, good luck to you. Sorry about it. Well, and this, I mean, this is my whole, my biggest issue with the USGA is it, it seems like everything is reactionary, right? It's like, mm. okay, this is happening. Let's make a rule. Cause like you said, it's a rulemaking body and they like to make rules. So, uh, you know, Bryson appears to, and, and others, right. But Bryson is now talking about 48 inch driver and the guys I've talked to have said, they don't think it'll stick. Right. It's just an experimental thing, but it's like, Hey, this, this could happen. Let's make a rule. And you, you, it kind of overlooking the fact, like you said, Brooke Henderson has been playing a long driver for forever and she is not obsolete in golf courses. Right. So, it is. It's like, you know, great example, tiger proofing everything where it's just one guy is doing one thing. And so we need to change a whole lot of stuff. And and granted, Bryson, the distance thing is not a Bryson thing. He's no. just sort of elevated the accelerated the conversation. But, you know, when you start right. talking about 48 inches dri- drivers, they're not commonplace. Ultimately, I don't care because, you know, fully self-serving. I'm never going to play a 48 inch driver. I'm not going to hit that straight. That'd be stupid. But you know, like you said, it, at some point it is a fitting variable. And so when I hear about, well, maybe maybe we'll have sort of a minimum spin requirement on a driver. Well, that's that's a fitting variable. So you're going to you're going to punish higher spin players and not right. let them trim spin while letting other guys be in their optimal range. That's the same thing with a golf ball to an extent. If you have a limited flight golf ball, you know, everybody, you, you still keep launching spin properties theoretically. It's yeah, I, I get that. But yeah. you're still hurting every golfer. Right. But. But you're not hurting disproportionately, you know, a segment of golfers. And when I hear, you know, the idea of maybe maybe limited loft, like cap loft, you can't go below nine degrees. Well, again, Tom Olsavsky from Cobra posted yesterday on Twitter, right? Dustin Johnson plays a driver that is 10, 10 and a half degrees. Bryson is, is in the five and a half range. So you're going to say Dustin Johnson gets to keep the driver that he plays. Bryson has to hit one more like Dustin's. Again, yeah disproportionate doesn't make sense you know what i'd love to find out is what the handicaps and what abilities the usga committee actually have just imagine if they're all like 30 handicaps and top it shank it do whatever like like like, like you tony <laughs> <laughs> like if they do all of that and then they're making these rules then you bite him for the pro athletes i mean i think that's true of ever every governing body yeah every sport complete yeah i get it i get it but i'm just curious and this is getting down. I mean, I think two things, a couple things people need to keep in mind too. Like these comment periods run through, you know, November and these particular items that they put out aren't necessarily attached to the distance insights study. Like, Hey, as a result of that study, here's things that we're going to do. These Nothing's are things implemented yet. Right. No, yeah, no, these are all no proposals, proposals, possibilities. So this doesn't even mean that any of it's going to affect the game of golf at all. It could all just be like, that was a great study. Now we're not doing anything. Not in the media future. And and what people don't, you know, maybe realize about that too is like, okay, that's just a comment period, right? So that gets you to the end of this year. And then, okay, based on those comments, here's what we're going to propose or look at, whatever. Okay, great. You're probably several years away from anything actually being enacted. And that wouldn't include any type of litigious environment that may result from some of Hell this where yes. And this is this is where, again, 
Harry, you've pointed this out. Tony, you've pointed this out. The devil is in the details with any of these things. Okay, at what level do you change this? You know, these specific examples of what would we do in this situation, right now it's all theoretical. At some point that becomes actual. And when that becomes actual, then you actually see the degree to which something can be enforced. Right now everything's theoretical. And that's where I was saying, regardless of what they would do with the equipment stuff, I see two or three major, major issues. If you bifurcate, okay, and you say, okay, here's this particular subset of equipment, whatever it is. Now, manufacturers have to create that equipment for a certain group of people, right? They have to invest in the technology, R&D, et cetera, really without the same ability to recoup the cost in it because now you got a whole group of consumers that don't want to buy it. Yeah, I'm I'm less concerned about that if only because if if you look at the evolution of equipment, right? Um Titleist, for example, already knows how to make a golf ball that doesn't go as far as the current one because they made that ball a long time ago. And sure. every everybody else yeah. can make a, a driver that doesn't yeah. go as far. They, you know, if 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 all of a sudden the USGA says, you know what, um, new C2 rule instead of 239. We're going to we're going to call it 200 and we're going to be reasonably strict on enforcing it. That's easy. You just make the faces thicker. Right. So right. dialing back the equipment is not a huge cost um, if you dial it back for a subset of people now, meaning tour pros or local rules, however you do it. But if you're in a situation where we you say, hey, yeah, you know what? We know that you've invested millions to get to this point and, and develop these products that people want to buy. And, and now not only are we going to say, you know, we're going to, we're going to, especially with the golf ball, they're talking about, you know, implementing new tests that would effectively delist some balls that are currently deemed to be conforming, right? You can say, you know what, right. you have to abandon all of that research that got you this better, longer golf ball. And now you're going to have to have to try and sell something that wasn't as good as what you made a year ago. And everybody's right. going to know it's not as good a year ago. Yeah. If they're going to do that, if the USGA say, hey, you're going to have to start making Pro V1 because it goes too far or whatever it is, whatever ball it is with all these manufacturers, are they going to compensate them? Obviously not. No. No way. If you're a ball company, and, and I'm sure, like, I'll, I'll use Titleist as an example, but I guarantee you the others are looking this, and while they're all saying the right things for now, you can bet if you say, hey, we invested millions and millions of dollars to making a ball that conforms to your specification and now you're giving us the middle finger. And now you're going to tell me that everything we did is that's gone. Right. Like you can't do that anymore. You have to throw that away. It's not going to sit well. And I think no. golf golf inherently is litigious, right? We talk about golf companies sending letters all the time over every little thing that every every slight, every piece of marketing material that isn't letter perfect. So to think that if you know, the USGA says we're moving forward this, all this discussion is now a real thing. I think that's when when brands are going to stop being polite and when lawyers will get involved. And we've already seen this to a degree. We've already seen in the last three to five years, right? Tour spend in general has gone down for companies, right? Spending less money on their stable of tour players or putting money into these big contracts we, we've seen it go more to the incentive based route too where players may get a little bit more out of their relationship based on finishes etc if that were to happen again we're projecting but if that were to happen would this start to reset some of you know those type of sponsorship opportunities where it's like 
how are we going to put this ball out there and say, hey, we're going to pay you X amount to play this ball and we can talk about this ball. And you're like, man, this thing's great. It is X percent shorter than the one that you can buy at retail. <laughs> and and that's and, hey, exactly the question. I mean, I... <laughs> like, oh, good. So I talked to an R&D guy yesterday and we, we sort of de decided that it was the marketing guy's problem. But there would come a point in time where you have to figure out how to market a product that most anybody who would buy it knows isn't as good as the one he bought last time around. You know, imagine right. that in any situation where you're like, you know, like your your I mean, only alternative were, were cars that got <laughs> less <laughs> less miles per gallon or yeah. any analogy. Like you could only buy less efficient air conditioners when you're when the one you had blew up, right? Watch how much shorter Dustin hits this new ball and tell me <laughs> you don't want that in your bag. Exactly. I mean how I mean, again, marketing guys, there's some great ones out there, but to spin that and do, I mean, there there might be some novelty out of the gate, like, hey, I'll buy a dozen just because I want to see how these do it. But but there's a problem. Right? YouTubers you will go nuts, right? That's I mean, that's that's six months of content testing new equipment versus old. But at some point you just go, yeah, it turns out they they did make it perform like shit on a relative basis, just like <laughs> we expected. Right. Congratulations. Uh, I have a question. I don't know if this is me probably being dumb, but. Can can a committee start their own organization like the USGA and just keep the limits sure. exactly the same? Theoretically, sure. Your country club, right, can go, you know what? We think it's ridiculous, so use whatever equipment you want to use, right? There, there's always going to be that option, but... Yeah, but it's, could there be this the umbrella like the USGA that sure. does, that just holds... The PGA Tour. And I really think the PGA Tour should probably get involved in... in address it on their own and take the USGA out of the equation. Uh, but you know, that's probably not going to happen every, again, there's, it's, it's very sort of diplomatic and, and politically correct. And right. This is one of the fights that would be out there that I'm saying where we're nowhere near some type of resolution where it's like, okay, clear, here's what's happening. We're moving forward that we're in a very gray, murky, muddy, ugly period of this where there's more questions than answers there's there's a lack of clarity there's information and and some of it's really really bad and misleading and some of it's really incomplete and a lot of it's based on you know opinion really and and perspective but is there something saying that the pga tour couldn't create their own set of rules no not at all i mean that's miranda's example right there the nfl rules aren't, aren't yeah. the same as the ncaa's that's there's not like the, the United States Football Association didn't yeah. come in and make one set of rules and, and apply right. it to everything from the NFL to Pop Warner, right? That's where I think it's going. All right. Every time I thought I was going to break in to move on, you guys had something else new and good to say. So you're very passionate about it. Congratulations on doing an entire podcast on one subject. Done. But and we could, we, I, there's more to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm cutting you off. <laughs> I had more analogies. I was going to go like how CT and core is like, really, it's like the ACT and SAT. And two different tests to measure a similar result. You're sneaking but it in there. I hear I'm you. Just, I'm just saying. <laughs> there's there is a whole other podcast, Tony and I can go down on analogies of CT and core testing for people. <laughs> I like how he didn't include me on that just because I, well, I wasn't uh, I wasn't bright enough, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't get to talk about golf balls and and the ODS. So you did not talk about ODS. No. I did not. We'll talk. Maybe we'll talk about ODS next time. Next time, yeah. the extended cut. <laughs> yep, I let you. I let you beat the crap out of it. But now, who wants to sit in the hot seat? I will. I don't care. All right, Tony, are you ready? Yeah, my 
my seat's already hot. I got I got two dogs right here, so I'm giving you two billion dollars. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Would you buy TaylorMade? Hard pass. No. Hard pass. No, I would not spend two billion on TaylorMade. Why not? Because it's it's not worth two billion. I think is probably you know the simple explanation. All right, we'll get into that. Yeah. Harry, here's your two billion dollars. Are you buying TaylorMade? Uh, if it got me on tour, maybe. <laughs> but it, <laughs> no, I would not. No. All right, Chris, oh. you're a big investor. No. You've got three billion just to be safe. No. N not taking a chance on TaylorMade? I'm not at two. Not at two. All right. All right, what are we renegotiating to? What's TaylorMade worth? I don't think it. I mean, you'd, you'd have to see the sheet, right? Privately held, so you don't know. But it's it's not two billion. But when I go to sell my house, I'm not going to list it for my minimum number, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna no. set an ambitious target and and try and come down. So yeah, and and a little perspective here, right? Too. So KPS Capital uh, Partners, New York based equity firm, bought TaylorMade from Adidas, uh, 2017 for 425 million uh, of which about half of that was real cash so you can make yep. an argument that you know in terms of cash outlay a little over 200 million or right around 200 million kps capital their, their job as a private equity firm right is to come in buy low and sell high and and practically speaking the quicker you can do that the better right their job is to go in fix what needs to be fixed assess the situation increase the valuation uh, legitimately, right, of the company and find another buyer for it and then move on to the next project. And so, you know, here we are, what, three and a half, four years later after that. And the number that came out was this $2 billion number. That's what had, you know, being floated. It puts it more in line with some of the other OEMs, right? Well, Titleist is th over $3 billion valuation. Uh, TaylorMade, I'm sorry, Callaway, $2.63 or $2.71 billion, depending on what number you want to pick from which specific date. But a $2 billion, yeah, would put them in that conversation. I, we don't have the sheets. We don't know. Just like Ping being privately held, we're not sure. But I don't see $2 billion. What separates TaylorMade from those two other big juggernauts? TaylorMade makes golf equipment. Right, done. That is that is the conversation. Callaway has Travis Matthew, Ogio, Jack Wolfskin, Jack uh, Wolfskin, <laughs> Top Golf as part of the portfolio. Right, uh. so you you have all those things that are ancillary to golf. They have a an ecosystem of brands. Akushnet. You have Titleist. You have Footjoy. You have what was the the Leatherworks company they bought? I can't even remember. The, Links and Kings, maybe. Yeah, Links, Links and, King. and Kings, and of course. Shoes. So, <laughs> I mean, of course. you have shoes as part of the portfolio, whereas TaylorMade, which is a golf company, you have Adams, which is a golf company that is, you know, essentially making infomercial products for quick sale, right? At this point in time, which is granted more than they were doing six months ago, but it's, you know, it's not a giant revenue stream. And knowing that TaylorMade, again, it is just a golf brand. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? They're a really strong no. golf brand, but they don't have the portfolio of other brands to, to justify $2 billion in my mind. And that clearly wasn't part of KPS's strategy coming in, right? So when over their three and a half, four years, they didn't look to acquire other ancillary brands or find those. It's clear that they they came in to fix what was there, right? To find a way to take... TaylorMade and, and, and almost kind of put TaylorMade back together a little bit and say, okay, 
how can we increase the valuation of what's here without necessarily spending money to add other pieces that could have taken longer to recoup, right, on some of those cash outlays or those expenses. They wanted to turn what they had into a better version of it. If it goes for a billion, I mean, that this is a lot. I mean, it's all speculation. Right. 1 to 1.3-ish, 1. somewhere in there, I would not be at all surprised to see that. If they get $2 billion for it, I will absolutely send a Japanese head cover to <laughs> some... I mean, I, and then I, we, I, we I, talked about this a couple like, of years ago when, when it was up for sale. And we said that if this company comes in... They're known to doing this, right? Making it, making it, flipping it and looking I mean, and looking really good on paper to get rid of all the the kinks and therefore sell it on. I'm not sure why people are surprised and saying they're just the yeah. equipment sucks or whatever it is. There's no re. It's, it that's why they're selling because they know it's not good. That's not it at all. They've actually had a really good season when it comes to equipment sales. And that's the right, the perception, oh my God, they're up for sale again. That's a bad sign. Well, no, it's it's really a good sign. It means that the private equity firm came in and, and made renovations to the house and now they're ready to flip it, right? That, yeah, that's right. how it works and make a lot of money on the deal. And if you look at some of the things that his tailor-made has done differently since KPS took over, I would, I might suggest that they've cut tour spend a little, but if I, if I said that, I'd probably get a text or an email. So I'll say they've reallocated their tour spend. They're, they have taken a different approach to tour. And, yeah. and you see that, right? They have a smaller roster of, I mean, it's second to none, right? Like who has the best tour staff? It's tailor-made, right? So by far, that's pretty clear. They've, they've changed, they've mm -hmm. changed their model. They don't blow clubs out dirt cheap halfway through a cycle. You know, when the SIM went on sale this year? No. Mm. <laughs> and this is no joke. I may be off by two days. It was by my count three days before the SIM 2 launched. Mm. It was tight. So they're, they are maintaining prices. And just, you know, in terms of in our dealings, right, we haven't, if we're being honest, always had the best relationship with TaylorMade. <laughs> but you do see a company that that is kind of more focused, more on track and is being smart about market share, not not trying to chase, oh, we can get to 52% of the driver market, right? No, we're, we're, we're not worried about that. We're just going to make a good product and we're going to make money doing it. And, you know, in, right. in taking that approach... TaylorMade finishes the number one driver in in 2020. I'm really interested to see who ends up buying it. Like yeah. that's the part that's the part that like I yeah. heard that's like okay that all makes sense. We'll see valuation. I mean, at the end of the day, the company's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. I mean, that's just okay. Great. Who cares? But who are we going to see some type of market consolidation? Are we going to see an individual right that wants to get into the equipment space and? There's plenty of billionaires out there that might be willing to Jeff Bezos, Amazon. I don't know. He just so, stepped down from. Yeah. So this know, is like you're hearing some things like, yeah, again, I'm connecting dots that maybe don't exist. But I'm going to be really interested to see is this a group that buys it? Is, a, is it a portfolio? Is it a conglomeration? Yeah. Or is it an individual that's like, hey. Let's uh let's see what we can do with this. I've all you know what when I was a little kid I always wanted to own a golf company so here we go you know. Hey, what about what about, do you think Disney will take it? <laughs> this is one of the things, right? As soon as this popped up, I'm like, all right, who who are possible buyers? Yeah, the list can't be that long. So I'll I'll run down the list, and this is again talking from guys who are in the industry, around the industry, whatever you want to call it, and then just kind of putting some thoughts together on my own. So we'll we'll start with the the easiest one. Chris talked about this. Some rich dude, right? Like, hey, I have I have a lot of money, and it would be cool to 
to buy a golf company. Am so I going to buy an NFL team or am I going to buy a golf company? Yeah, so yeah. it could just be some rich guy, some rich woman, right? Somebody. Just just a person. That could happen. Russian oligarch. Yeah, there you go. Falling under your, your Occam's razor, right? The simple explanation, extending that to the, the most simply or the, the most likely, the most probable, is the idea of a, a SPAC, a special purpose and acquisitions company, otherwise known as a Blake Check company. If you're not familiar with it, it's basically... The groups that form to to launch an uh, effectively an IPO of a company that that has no assets, nothing, right? It's it's a company on paper only. It brings in investors, and and as it's formed, it has a target acquisition, but they don't necessarily tell you what that acquisition is. You're just, hey, we we trust you. We're going to invest with you because we believe that you're going to figure out how to make us money. And so it could be basically another investment group that that comes in that wants to own TaylorMade full time. And so that right. that's one option is a SPAC. And that that strikes me as the most logical, but it's the least fun. So if we mm-hmm. if we go down the list, what's fun? Yeah, that's your I mean, that's your buddy that you think you're like, God, this guy's really smart. He does it. He's yeah. like, hey, Tony, give me a thousand bucks. Don't worry about it. I'm gonna get you X. And you're yep. like, Okay, here you go. You know, that's a SPAC. I think it's probably the most likely, but it's it's boring. So if we want to talk about more interesting <laughs> options, you talk about Bezos, right? Amazon, they do a massive, massive number of in, in golf every year, have never acquired a brand that we know of, don't have a house brand other than Amazon Basics, right? Um, so the idea of, of TaylorMade being Amazon Basics golf is is kind of funny. But and again, it's not high probability, but do you think then so like we think of Amazon Basics and we think or at least I do like, OK, it probably looks like something name brand, but it's cheaper. They deliver it to my door. It's like it's like a it's like a Costco Kirkland. Yeah. But so does that dilute the tailor-made brand perception if someone like Amazon buys it? So it's maybe and again they've never done this before so it seems unlikely but at the same time you know 85 plus or minus percent of American households now have an Amazon Prime membership. Seriously, 85%? Yeah, it's a massive audience. I mean, I'm in that number. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, so (laughs) we're at the point, this is one of the things we've learned, like Amazon searches are surpassing Google searches. Google searches, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is when I order from Amazon, it's something, A, that I've probably bought before, and, you know, I'm not not going on a whim and buying something new, and, and B, it's not something that I care to really like look too much into or research or anything like that. So that's what I start wondering. It does it create a problem for TaylorMade in terms of selling equipment? Do they become a budget brand? No, they keep the they keep the perception of TaylorMade the same. It just instead of going through TaylorMade's website, it's going through Amazon and therefore you can manipulate the money a lot better and it's all going to you and it's going through a different site which then for you might be able to go from Amazon buy a club Go to something else, buy something else on Amazon, buy something else, buy something else, because it all pops up in relevant terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get that. I'm just wondering from like a brand perspective. I think it's unlikely. And again, there's there's no model for this. I think it would be smart for them. But it's like, all right, who could do it? And so similar lines, Costco potentially, right? Because we know... We know Costco loves the golf business. They want to be deeper into it. <laughs> They're doing pretty well with the Kirkland stuff, but if you wanted to elevate the Costco brand... That's an interesting um, theory. Again, I, I think it's probably low probability. Most likely, it's going to be something that's not exciting at all. Well, I'll get there. I mean, I got one for you that is, but... Okay. 
One of them that was suggested to me, this was called the, was described as a reverse top golf in which drive shack, <laughs> which, has, which Taylor made was an investor in, right? So correct. Correct. Maybe Drive Shack comes in and goes, "Hey, we want to be, you know, we want to be the the top golf Callaway." Do they have that much money? I don't know. Right, probably not two billion. Yeah. Wasn't Drive Shack's original name uh, Top Golf was full? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah. That, so that's that one option, pros? and so that one. And now I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch what I think is the most sexy of the bunch. I don't probably low probability. I would roll? still I'm still gonna bet on Spac or some rich guy, but. Let me let me ask you a question, guys. Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, Matthew Wolf, Tommy Fleetwood, Sarah Brooks, Maria Fossey. What do they all have in common? They have money and they want to buy a company. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me let me let me do this. Yeah, Nike. they're all former Nike people. Current Nike people. Oh, okay. Well, they're all Nike apparel people. They are yeah. Nike yeah. apparel people, and so. You look at that. There's already a close connection. Yeah, you've got you've got DJ and Morikawa who are Adidas people, um, and that maybe creates a little friction initially. But you know, my my hunch is we've seen Nike start to do more with golf bags, gloves again, right? They are they are starting to creep back into the periphery of golf. And so, well, again, I think this is probably low probability. If if Nike's looking at it and going, we got that itch again. And if you remember, Nike Nike got its start by buying a small golf company, right? That that's right. what they did. That's how they got in. Arguably, if they'd come in and bought a big golf company, they'd probably still be in the golf business today. And so, and Nike has two billion. If it if it wants to spend two billion, like I said, low probability, but that's the one that goes. Mm, that could be fun. I thought for a second you were saying that all of those players were going to band together and pull a Grey's Anatomy and buy the hospital. <laughs> right, right. Buy Grace General. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, so the point being, there is already a strong tailor-made Nike connection. Like I said, got a couple True. guys that, that, are, that are rocking the three stripes, but... Is there a world that exists where something goes from being owned by Adidas to flipping and then Nike buys it. Yeah, I guess we'll find out, right? I again, yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put a substantial sum of money on it, but you know, if you're if you're going to bet a long shot, like this this is the horse in the race that that certainly I'd want to root for if nothing else could surprise us. Yeah, that would be very very intriguing. I, I still feel like Nike never completely lost the golf itch, but the other thing to keep in mind too, as with anything else financially, it's it's a dumb thing to do to buy high. <laughs> and so, yeah. well, well, KPS bought low and is going to sell high. The, the guys I've talked to about it, like golf is as good as it's ever going to be right now. Um, the, the thinking 2020 record year, right? everybody, everybody is rolling around in cash. I joked with somebody yesterday, right? Like I was just lighting money on fire right now, which is unusual for, for the golf business. 2021, the projections are, yeah, we, we think it's going to continue because COVID is still here, getting better, but still here. So we, we think there's still going to be people coming into the game, playing more golf than they've played in the past. But 2022, those projections start to look less rosy, right? As, as life returns to normal, kids sports, full swing, all the stuff that, that people did instead of playing golf is back. You know, golf is... It, I yeah. think you can anticipate a dip. And no, this is the time for them to sell. And even if they made three X or four X on it, I mean, think about that from an investment standpoint, yeah. right? Like, well, yeah, one one point two would be a nice 
if they made 1.2 to 1.6, that's 3x to 4x on on what yeah. amounted to really a $200 million cash outlay. I would think if somebody came in there, offered that whatever, they felt good about it, they'd take it and run. My my brother has a theory. He's like, if anybody offers you more than a billion for anything, you'd take it. <laughs> like, <it's> just like, <laughs> uh, All right, Tony, I got another one for you. I'm giving you another $2 billion. Why not? Would you buy any pinnacle range balls with any of your $2 billion? <laughs> Buying yes, range oh, balls, yes. no. Oh, what yes. a ridiculous waste of time, said some guy in our comment section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think you spend $2 billion on range balls. <laughs> well, I was asking if you'd spend any one of your $2 billion. No, not even on not even one. So they, they um, were in Ball Lab this week, and I know it was one of our more interesting Ball Lab editions. Can you give us the lowdown? Yeah, I mean, it was... You know, people are, some people are angry that we did it because, you know, they want to see it. <laughs> but we're like, yeah, no, it's a. How dare you provide free information? Yeah. Why wouldn't we take a look at the ball that is hit more than any other ball in golf, even yeah, if it's not necessarily wild. on a golf course? And so, you know, my, my expectations were low. Think, you know, who, who gives a shit? It's a range ball. And it actually, like I said, solidly average in, in every way. And so I was like, oh, I guess that's, that's something. And I wouldn't expect that from every range ball necessarily. And. You know, we've kind of joked maybe we should look at a one piece just to see what that's like. Um, yeah, but would you get your numbers from a range ball? We've said that, like, oh, I know, but we need to say it again. If if you walk in for a fitting and your only option is, you know, and there's a place near me that's I don't know if they're doing it any differently, but they they fit for years using their range balls, and so if you walk in and you're going to spend five hundred, six hundred, whatever it is after upgrades on a driver. And they, you know, they toss you a ball and that ball says, I don't care if it says pinnacle on it at all. You probably shouldn't be getting fit with it. No, no disrespect to pinnacle, but that's, that's not a ball I want to get fit with. Right. So, no. uh, yeah. And especially if, if, if the next word on it is practice or range. Yeah. That's, that's a giant red flag. So no, don't get fit with range balls. Pinnacle, Shrixon, doesn't matter. Don't, don't do it. Anything interesting that you took out of this ball lab that you weren't expecting? Uh, yeah, I just, I wasn't expecting the ball to be even reasonably consistent. So the, the fact that it was, was surprising. Yeah. I, I took a pretty cool picture of the core. So, you know, that's always a nice takeaway when I get some good imagery. Yeah. Again, this isn't, this wasn't meant to be a super serious evaluation of whether or not a pinnacle practice ball should be on your, your list of must tries, but just kind of curiosity to see. How does it compare? Yeah. And my expectation was it was going to be the shittiest ball in our database. And, and it wasn't. And so like, it was one of these things like, let's put it in the database, let's see how it compares, and then let's take it out. And I'm like, well, no, it's, let's leave it in there because it's, it's perfectly average in every respect. Will we be coming out uh, with a list of golf balls that are not as good as a pinnacle range ball? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it's... Is it our new barometer, better or worse than a pinnacle practice ball? <laughs> The Mendoza line of golf balls. I mean, it's it's funny to joke about it, and I know people like to to poke other balls and go, oh, "Look, it's not even as good as the range ball." But you know, as I as I said in the review, in in terms of making a ball, I mean, it's short of a one piece. It's the easiest construction you can imagine, right? You're you're right. taking a really firm core material and sticking it inside a really firm cover. And if you can't get those two things to line up and be consistent, like you probably shouldn't be making any golf ball. It's like microwaving hot pockets, man. You should 
be able to do it. it like I said, I was surprised, but at the same time, if you, you step back and go, range balls are, are garbage, why would you, you know, nobody should even hit a range ball type of thing. But if you just step back and look at it in terms of, you know, what does it actually take to make one of these well? It, you just have to give a, a shit just a tiny little bit because it's a really, right. really easy ball to make. <laughs> actually, one of the things in, in talking to the the guy that I, I would work with for Pinnacle is that it's like you, you have to worry about mold durability because the cover material is so, firm. so hard. So it's like, yeah, we have this this mold design that, that has to be super durable. So, again, it's just putting a rock inside a rock. All right. Are we tired of talking to each other today? It's been a long one. That's been a long one. I was just getting started. All right, Chris, what else you got? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought. We didn't talk about the ODS. I I, I was willing to trade ODS for a a compelling shoes reference. So anytime I can work shoes into the conversation. Shoes. All right, guys. Well, that was a good one today. We had a lot of fun, covered a lot of ground, a lot of ground. Puma says goodbye and we out.